You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. Uh, We've been in the book of Acts, and we just finished the book of Acts. What a wonderful thing it is to be able to get through a book of the Bible, which, by the way, I'll encourage you in something, too. And this is something that I've kind of grown and gravitated in as I've gotten older in the faith and as I've been following the Lord now for close to uh, 30 years. And uh, when I was younger, I would just look for the verse that spoke to me. I would look in the scriptures, I would try and find a verse that spoke to me, and that's how I would be encouraged and be uplifted. But what I found in that is that it lacked something. It lacked context. It lacked a little bit of maturity on my part, too. Um, To read the Word is not only about just looking for what speaks to me. It's about growing in your understanding of who God is and what He wants us to know. And when you do that, it changes the way you look at everything. It completely changes your perspective to how you get into the Word. Instead of looking for the things that really speak to us and get us excited, like for some of us it's the gifts of the Spirit, for some of us it's you know, other things in our life. But if we look at it and say, okay, well, I'm just going to take the Word, I'm going to go through the book of the Bible, and I'm going to read through it, you'll find some things that will encourage you. And dare I say, they'll find some things that will challenge you too. Dare I say that you'll find some things that you may not even like in there. Because we like to skip over those verses. We're like, get, let's get to the good part. Let's get to the blessing. Let's get to the bumper sticker stuff. You know, stuff that's on the daily devotional calendar that we can tear off and put somewhere. But the reality is when we do that, when we get into the Word on a regular basis and we let the Word speak to us, we are putting ourselves under the authority of God's Word and allowing Him to change us. It's not, Lord, what are you going to do for me today? What are you going to say to me today? It's more so, Lord, whatever you choose to say to me, whether I like it or not, I'm going to grow from it. Amen? So we finished up Acts, and uh, now as we left the book of Acts, remember that Paul uh, was spending two years under house arrest. Uh, He was a prisoner during that time. He was in prison during that time, but not in a prison like you and I would know, uh, being locked behind bars. Uh, Paul was allowed to live in his own house, a rented house, and he was put under uh, house arrest, kind of like if you had an ankle bracelet, so to speak. You're allowed to live in your own house, but you can only go certain places. So he was assigned a Roman guard that would change every six hours. A new guard would be assigned to him. But he was allowed to have people come and visit him where he was, and people could leave from him. So they could bring him things, whether it be supplies or food that he needed and other things, uh, and they would leave with his correspondence. So during this two-year time, he said, you know what, while I'm waiting for my appeal to Caesar, I'm going to make the best use of my time. I'm going to write. And he would write uh, a series of about four different letters, which later uh, became known as the prison epistles. Now, if you don't know what an epistle is, an epistle is a fancy word for letter. So he wrote these four letters, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then a book called Philemon. And so he wrote these books during this time to encourage the church and to bless the church during that time. Now, so we see that taking place here, and uh, we wonder, well, well, how did he get these letters back and forth? And it says that if we read in chapter 1 of Colossians, which, by the way, you can turn there right now, Colossians chapter 1, if you have uh, an old-fashioned Bible, you can do that, or if you have a tablet like Gary... You can use the tablet, too. I'm impressed with Gary. Gary usually uses a really big, thick King James Bible, so for him to use a tablet's real progress. So I give you credit for that, brother. Uh, so if you do that, turn to uh, Colossians chapter 1, and you'll see that he greets you with different people in there, and one of them is Timothy. 
Timothy's a young pastor who spent time with him and that Paul uh, not only saved, but discipled and eventually raised him up to become the pastor of the church in Ephesus. There's also other people, too, with him, uh, Paphras and Tychius, who uh, were people that were with him. And they, although uh, him and Aristarchus were fellow prisoners, it says, they weren't actually accused of any crime. They weren't in jail for anything. They were just people who decided to stay with Paul and help Paul while he was in prison. And so we have that little bit of background there. And so it's a, the book is called Colossians, and it's a book to the church in Colossae. Now, Colossae is a small town. So if you were thinking like, okay, if, uh, you know, Ephesus was Springfield, then Colossae would be Southwick, okay? It was a smaller town. Um, so it was not in a major city. In fact, none of the apostles even planted this church. Um, usually the apostles would come through, they'd preach, and they would establish churches there, and they would go off to a different region, leaving elders or a pastor in charge. But in this case, they didn't even do that. It wasn't brought about through the preaching of the apostles. So how did it begin? Well, it began because, remember, Paul, in the book of Acts, we talked about it it's in Acts chapter 19 and 20, that Paul... Uh, traveled through the region of Ephesus. And in the region of Ephesus, he preached there, and he saw su- such success there that he spent three years of his life ministering, teaching, uh, discipling, and raising up churches there. It's believed that while he was ministering in Ephesus, that people from Colossae came and heard him preach, and they brought the message back to Colossae, and established a church there. There was no pastor, there was no apostles, there was no teachers, just people that heard the message of Jesus, were glad to hear it, and uh, got together and started believing the scriptures together. So where is Colossae located? Colossae is located in uh, Asia Minor. If you were to take a look at a map and you were to put your finger right in the center of Asia Minor, that's where Colossae would be located today. That's in modern-day Turkey. So if you're to look on a modern map, it's located in where Turkey is today. So how did, but how did Paul, who had no contact with the church in Colossae, never preached in Colossae, never visited there, how did a church begin there? Like, and how did he get to writing about the church in the Colossae? Well, the answer is really simple, actually. If we trace a little bit of the history there, we recognize that Paul came in contact with a, a slave no, named Onesimus. And he befriended Paul and helped Paul, but Onesimus was a runaway slave. He had ran away from his master and was hiding from him. And he became friends with Paul, and Paul uh, got to know him fairly well. And uh, Onesimus belonged to uh, a master that was named Philemon. And Philemon actually attended and was part of the Colossian church. So the book of Philemon is written uh, to this Uh, slave owner in the church, advising him to welcome Onesimus back and to treat him well, to treat him like family instead of treating him like a slave. And so we have that that, that short book in the Bible connected to this relationship there. The other thing is that we see a man named Epaphras. Now, Epaphras was a teacher in the the, uh, Colossian church. He was someone that uh, had heard the gospel, uh, had taught the gospel, taught from the scriptures, and was teaching in the church, and he went to look for Paul uh, in Rome, which is Paul where he is right now. He is in house arrest in Rome. 
traveled all the way to Rome, and he asked for Paul's help because he said, Paul, our church, our little church in this town uh, is coming under a heretical teaching, false teaching, because there's some apostles, some fake apostles, if you will, some false teachers that have come in and started teaching things that are against the gospel. They're teaching some things that have nothing to do with the scriptures, and I'm really concerned about it, but I have no way to address it. So, Paul, can you help us? And Paul writes this letter to the church in Colossae. And there were heresies. Now, heresies are things that go against traditional teaching. There are false teaching that's creeping into the church. So what were these things? And there are five things that kind of show up there. You can jot them down. I can't take credit for these. Uh, Bible teacher Norman Geisler uh, cited these five things. But the first thing is this. It, uh, they ha- were observing the Jewish traditions and Old Testament law and ceremonies. So there were some that had only heard about John's baptism. Now, you might have seen that in the book of Acts, right? We have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. What baptism did you receive? John's baptism. Well, that's the baptism of repentance and the observance of the Old Testament law. So these uh, Jews who had not yet heard the gospel, and many times in Paul's ministry, you would see that people called Judaizers who would come and say, you, you can be Christian, but you need to be Jewish Christian. So that means you need to observe, don't eat certain things, abstain from certain kinds of dress, a certain kind of clothing, and uh, you need to observe all the feasts and all those things. And if you don't do them, uh, then you're not really a Christian. And uh, in some cases, too, you know, you need to observe circumcision, whether you were a grown-up or a child. And so all of these restrictions that are being put on that the church was kind of coming under the scrutiny and coming under the difficulty of having uh, Jewish traditions being pushed on them in the church. But it wasn't just that. How many know like there's something, there's like a hybrid of things that kind of get mixed together in the world that we're living in today, that sometimes we see religion and we see Christianity, we're like, well, it's Christianity, but it's mixed in with other things. Judaism was just, uh, this, this form of uh, restrictive law observance was just one of the things mixed in there. The second thing is uh, philosophical ideas, laying the emphasis on some special or deeper knowledge. In other words, they needed, the second thing that you you saw in this kind of false teaching was that they had to know the mystery knowledge, the mystery revelations that were come to them. And the only way they could get them is through the teachings of certain so-called super apostles. And these were people that came into the church who recognized, here's a small church with no apostle over them, with no one looking out for them, and they came in and started bringing things. And they said, you know what? You should listen to us because we have this special knowledge. We have a revelation that's too secret that no one else has even heard of. Not even the apostles of Christ have received this revelation. And so you must learn it from us. And if you don't learn it from us, then you're not really a Christian and you're not really on our level. A dangerous teaching, to be sure. The third thing was the worship of angels. And they looked at angels as though they were the, the mediators of the will and the, the, the function of mankind. So whatever happened had something to do with angels steering things. 
and that you had to worship angels and pay attention to angels. And if you didn't, then you know, blessings wouldn't come to you and you wouldn't have the angelic protection that you needed. And then there would be evil spirits and principalities and powers that would come against you if you didn't do these things. And so there was a, a, an a unhealthy attention on angels. How many know angels are important? But we have to be careful about where we assign our attention to them. They are not to be worshipped. In fact, if you read Revelation or if you look at any other portion of Scripture, anytime someone tried to worship an angel, an angel said, nope, don't do it. I am a servant like you. So it's important for us to remember that, that the angels themselves, genuine angels, godly angels, do not seek worship, but rather direct worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourthly, is it was exclusive, stressing the privilege of perfection for those select few who belong to the philosophical elite. In other words, if you understood the secret knowledge, you got elevated to a place of higher up. You were higher up than everybody else because you knew something that no one else knew, and it was revealed to you by these super apostles these fake apostles, these false teachers, and then you elevated it, were elevated in the church. And that was the fourth thing. The fifth thing is that they denied the deity of Christ. This is the most dangerous one of them all, is that these super apostles said, you know what, uh, we have this knowledge, and this knowledge is, is superior than anything else that the disciples or the apostles have preached to you. And this is what we've learned, that all matter is evil. All physical things of this world is evil. So Christ couldn't have not possibly physically appeared in the flesh, but we only saw him as an illusion, or we saw him as a vision. He didn't actually come in the flesh because his flesh is sinful. And he didn't even die on the cross because, you know, his spirit was here, and it was just an illusion that was appeared to people, but didn't actually happen. And they would say that Christ was just one of many divine emanations that came from God. But he himself was not God. So you can see the problem here that the Colossian church has. And so why, why is this an issue? Because these would be considered heresies. Now, a heresy is a false teaching that undermines the foundations of your faith. Now, there's a lot of people that like to run around and call everything heresy. Like if you like uh, choruses over hymns in worship, that's heresy. You know, if you use the King James, if you don't use the King James only Bible, that's heresy. That's not heresy. That's preference. Heresy is when something denies the foundational teachings of the church or undermines the basic truths of the gospel. And that's what they were encountering in Colossae, is that here are these things that, although on the surface might seem very spiritual and Christian, right? We're talking about angels. We're talking about following the law. We're talking about, you know... Um, you know, uh, revelation and knowledge and pursuing revelation and knowledge, and those all seem like very good things until you realize they became more important than Christ and that Christ was lowered in his importance as far as salvation was concerned to the point of denying that Jesus was even God. I believe that there are things today that we as a church need to be careful of. We need to be discerning. We need to be careful about what we choose to listen to. You know, and just like the Colossian church, we have to be on guard against legalism. Where we say, okay, well, you can, you know, you can be a Christian, but make sure you do X, Y, and Z. Make sure you look like me and act like me. 
And what we do through self-righteousness and legalism is we, we create a lot of people that look like us, but not people that look like Jesus. That's the problem with legalism. I believe there's a problem with legalism today in the church. We have to be careful with and treat with great suspicion any teacher that says they have a revelation from God that is so mysterious and secretive that no one else can know it and would blow your mind if you knew it and it's on par with Scripture. That, my friend, is dangerous. Because what it's saying is that I've got something that even though Revelation 22 says it's a closed revelation, there's no new Scripture, someone's saying is I got something as good as Scripture right here. But pay me for it. Or follow me for it. And I'll tell you what it is. Whereas the, the apostles preached the gospel freely. And so it's not a mystery. We need to be discerning and treat with suspicion. Any teacher that says, I've got something that not even the apostles knew, that's dangerous. We should avoid elevating angels and spirits over Christ. Angels are ministering spirits sent as messengers of salvation, and they carry out the will of God. They are not equal with God, nor are they higher than God. Keep that in mind that as we talk about the angels, and, and even, I won't even get into like our misconceptions about angels. Like some people would say, okay, when your dad died, heaven got another angel. No, he didn't. he's not an angel right now. He's higher than the angels right now. Do you understand that? That scripturally speaking, that when we pass, we have salvation, and the angels will never have salvation. We have a divine inheritance that comes from God, and the angels will never have that. They will always be servants. They will never be exalted to the place of having a divine inheritance with God, having peace with God, having eternity with God, in, in the relationship with God, unlike any other. So when it comes to our concept of angels, sometimes we even get that a little twisted sideways. We should avoid any teaching that says you need anything additional besides Jesus in order to be saved. Jesus is the only way to salvation. Well, you need Jesus and this. No, you don't. Even if you died today and all you had was Jesus, you've got enough. You'll make it. Even if you didn't have any other teaching but you knew the basic message of salvation and you had a Bible in your hand, you're better off than most. It's not Jesus and other things. When people try and put conditions on salvation, then that's a problem because Jesus had everyone come to him freely to receive salvation. It's not about Jesus and legalism. It's not Jesus and special revelation. Everything that we have is found in what Jesus did for us on the cross and in his resurrection. In my preparation for my message today, I used a few different authors who are, are great teachers, Alfred Barnes, Warren Wearsby, Norman Geisler helped with this message today. But let's get into it. Colossians chapter 1. You still with me? That's a long introduction, but you still with me today? I believe today that we as a church need to be careful, just like the church in Colossae need to be careful, against false teaching and mysteries that are being talked about in uh, Christianity that uh, kind of lower the uh, importance of who Jesus is. And so the message to the Colossians is the message to us today as well. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. We'll look through it together and kind of break it down a little bit at a time. Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace and peace to you from our God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God of our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, 
since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up in heaven for you, of which we heard before the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is also in the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. You also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Okay, so I want to pause there. So the traditional greetings of Paul, Paul is greeting them, he's letting them know uh, about, you know, he's, he's letting them know that he's uh, happy to address them today, and how he came to know them. Take note of verse 4, it says, Paul makes note of their faith. It wasn't that the, so some, you know, Epaphras came to them and told them about the faithful Christians that were in Colossae that were under siege by false teachers. And so Paul hears about their faith, hears about their church, hears about the Christians, that the Christians there were good, well-meaning Christians who were just being subject to false teaching and error. Well-meaning and good people can fall prey to bad teaching. Well-meaning and good people can fall prey to bad teaching if they don't know any better. You know, sometimes we as believers, we hear that somebody believes in God, and we're like, oh, you must be a Christian. Not realizing that everybody has a different view of God outside of the church. So you get to say, oh, you believe in God, and it's like, well, who is God to you? And they'll tell you a bunch of different things. Sometimes it's a mix of a lot of different religions being presented together as one. But just because a person says they believe in God doesn't necessarily mean they're a Christian. A person can believe in Jesus and say, hey, I believe in Jesus. The Jehovah Witnesses that come to my door say, we believe the same Jesus that you do. And then we talk about it. And we said, I'm, said, I'm pretty sure we don't. But if you don't know that, how will you know? So sometimes we hear things and we say, oh, it must be like this because we make assumptions about it. And the same thing tr holds true here is that we'll see a lot of teaching online, we'll hear a lot of teachings on the radio, and we'll say because they're a Christian or because they're using certain keywords that uh, kind of touch us, we think to ourselves, we must listen to them because they're Christian, right? They're spirit-filled, right? They believe in the gospel, right? And so, like, they must be like us, so it's okay to digest that and to take that in. And the truth is, it's not always the case. Sometimes people are Christian in name only. Sometimes people are Christians, but weird Christians. We don't have any of those here, but I'm told there are weird Christians out there who are into strange things. And so sometimes we're like, well, they're Christian, right? So I suppose it's okay. Just, we have to be discerning. And so this is what, you know, Paul is writing to the church of Colossae. He says, okay, listen, you know, uh, and, and can I just say, too, there's some importance here that's being missed, is that Colossae was a church that was not established by the apostles. It was established by lay people, believers. And that's a wonderful thing that people out of faith birthed a church out of nothing, which just goes to show you the power of the gospel can, can start a church anytime and anywhere. But the difference in Colossae is that they did because an apostle didn't plant that church. There wasn't an apostle visiting that church and checking in on that church and raising up leaders and meeting with that pastor and uh, subjecting it to 
oversight and, and instruction and discipline. So really what the Colossians are doing here is they're saying, help. We've got people that have said in the absence, in the vacuum of good teachers, bad teachers step in. In the absence of sound teaching, someone else will say, you know, I'll teach you what you need to know. And there are times where we simply think that a false teacher is someone that is devious in nature. Sometimes a false teacher is just as deceived as the people they're deceiving. Now, it's not to say that there aren't people that are deceptive and are, that have destructive tendencies and have evil intentions. First Peter talks about that, that there are those who try and take advantage of people, either financially or sexually, because they are corrupt on the inside. But not every teacher that comes in really understands that they are deceived also. So the apostolic oversight really helped churches like Ephesus and other churches because someone would be checking in on them, saying, how are you doing? What's going on here? Can I help you with anything? They'd come and instruct. They'd come and teach. And so that was very helpful. Colossae was missing that, and they were in danger. These teachings were saying that, well, you know, it's nice that you have Jesus, but you need Jesus and something else. And what Paul does is he goes on to talk about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. Sufficiency means that's enough. I don't need anything else. And everything that we need from God is found in Jesus. The supremacy of Christ is that he's higher than everything else, greater than everything else. Even angels, even principalities, even powers, God's not worried about them. Jesus is not threatened by them. He's not worried about the kind of prayer that you need to pray to make it happen. Why? Because he's over all of them. And in a moment, in a, with a word from his lips, he can change it. So should we intercede? Yes. But let's not get it twisted and think that God needs our help somehow to make something happen. Because he can make it happen if he wants to make it happen in a moment. Christ is sufficient and supremely over all things. They didn't need an additional revelation. Jesus himself was enough. Now look at verses 9 through 14. Paul goes on to explain this. For this reason also, since the day we heard it, we don't cease to pray for you, to ask you that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers in the inheritance with the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the sons of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So I want you to look at a few things there. There's a lot in there. You guys see it? Highlight it in your Bibles. Use the highlighter feature on your tablet. Okay? First couple of verses there is like, okay, I want you to look at, if you would, verse 9. His prayer is that they would have knowledge, wisdom, and spiritual understanding. These things are essential for your walk with the Lord. Knowledge comes from the sound teaching in the Scriptures, Wisdom comes from the application of the scriptures and spiritual understanding is applying these things prayerfully to every situation. I'll say it again because it's real short and it's super simple. He prays that they would have knowledge, wisdom, and spiritual understanding. 
Knowledge comes from sound teaching in the scriptures. Wisdom comes from the application of those scriptures. And spiritual understanding comes from praying, applying these things prayerfully to every situation. So the only way you know what the will of God is is by studying his word. Once you have knowledge, then you can gain wisdom. Instead of going, gee, what should I do in this situation? The scriptures tell us what we should do. So that wisdom applied says, okay, I know I'm not supposed to defraud my neighbor, no matter how good of a business deal this is. I'm not supposed to do that because the scriptures say don't. So I won't. I don't need to ask God, what's the wise thing to do here? You know, Proverbs talks about a gentle answer turns away wrath. And I wish I could say I was always good at doing this. I'm not. Terrible at it. Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. But when things are heated and angry, instead of responding with heated and angry words, we should respond with a gentle answer. We don't need to go, well, God, what should I do in this situation? We should be able to catch ourselves, and wisdom says, I'm going to answer this way because that's what I should be doing. Spiritual understanding is saying, now that I know God's word, now that I know God's will, when I pray about something and when I need to make a decision about a situation or I'm going into a situation, I pray the word into that situation. I say, God, help me to have insight and understanding in accordance with your word and your will to do what's right. And when we do that, we will be able to cut off at the knees false teaching. We'll be able to knock it down from the get-go because we'll say, the Word doesn't say that. Or you might think the Word says that, but it actually doesn't say that at all. And so that really helps in that situation. Paul also encourages them to live a life worthy of the calling they've received. Alfred Barnes knows three things about this. To, To live a life worthy of God's calling is, number one, to live a life that pleases God. In other words, the way you live so that at the end of the day, you say, I did my best to please God. I lived in such a way that I have, my conscience is clear. I live to please him and serve him. Secondly, be fruitful in every good work, verse 10. In other words, we need to be producing fruit. You can't just be a pretty tree or a pretty plant, you know? You know, if you're growing things, ideally speaking, listen, last year during the pandemic, we tried to grow things. I'm sure many of you tried to grow things too. Some of you were successful, like the Benoits, I think fed half of Southwick with what came out of their garden. But some of us, who are a little green when it comes to green things, didn't do so well. So we planted, you know, cucumbers and had this cucumber vine grow up, and we did all the right things, used the right fertilizer, set up the string so they'd grow up the string, and it produced these really beautiful flowers that never grew into, like, cucumbers. So it's, it's one thing, listen, hear me, church, I love you to pieces. You look good on the outside, but one of the, the marks of pleasing, of doing, uh, walking worthy of God's calling is that you've actually produced something good from your life, that you produce fruit, the fruit of godly character, the fruit of the Spirit, but also that you are producing things for the kingdom of God. You're reaching people for Christ. You're discipling people. You're helping people. You're seeing the fruit of your life is not just you. Turning things around so that it's not just about churches. And church should be the the charging station for you to go out and do good things for God. Hopefully it is. 
It shouldn't be just like, well, I'm just going to take, take, receive, receive, receive. And there's, a, there's nothing wrong with receiving, but freely we've received, freely give. That's what Jesus said. So if we've received something good, you share with others. Listen, I love a good chocolate bar just like anybody else. There's about five of them in my fridge on the top shelf. And she keeps them for s'mores, but I can't resist them. So I eat at least two of them on my own. But I also like, when I get things, when I bring home sweets, I hide them from my kids because I want them for myself, right? And that seems like, how can you be so selfish? You have children. Why don't you think about them? Why don't you do something? Because I want it for me. We buy like a big sleeve of Oreos there for their, for their uh, you know, for their lunches and everything like that. It's supposed to last for the lunches. And unless we hide them, they're gone in two days. Not because of me, although I contribute, but my kids like to eat them too. So if we hope to have anything in their lunches, we need to hide them. And meanwhile, my kids are like, where are they hiding them? Let me know. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? But we're, like our life in Christ is not meant that God blesses us and then we hold those blessings to ourselves and then we keep them selfishly, but he's given them to us so we can hand out Oreos to people. You get what I'm saying? You follow where I'm coming from in this? Is that we've been blessed so that we can in turn be a blessing to others. So live to please God, be fruitful in every good work, and increase in the knowledge of God. In other words, keep growing, keep developing, keep it going further in your understanding. And he says you can't do this in your own power. Verse uh, 11 and 12, he says you can't do this in, in your own power. He says, uh, being strengthened according to his glorious power, for what? For patience. Oh, come on, really? Patience? Patience, yes, that you do things without complaining. It's like, how many of us, listen, I'm guilty too. I'm a complainer at times. But to do things without complaining is a mark of God's work in your life, a mark of God's power in your life. Being long-suffering. What does that mean? That you just like to suffer long? No. It means that you don't quit when things get difficult. It means when things get hard, you don't go, oh, I guess I'm not a Christian today. I guess God's not on the throne. I guess he's not listening to my prayer. And we complain to God, which goes back to the first thing, patience. And then the long-suffering thing is like, you know, I'm not going to quit. I'm not a quitter. I refuse to give up. I refuse to abdicate my faith. I refuse to give up on the situation. I'm going to stay true. Being joyful and giving thanks to the Father, verse 12. We're to be thankful, why? Because we are partakers of divine inheritance. Now, most of us understand the idea of inheritance. Inheritance comes to us when someone leaves something to us. When they pass on and they leave something to us. Most of us are hoping, like, maybe, you know, as your family went along, you're kind of like, well, I'm hoping that I get this in my inheritance. Or if we go back to the story of the prodigal son, The prodigal son didn't even wait for his father to pass away. He says, give me my inheritance now, knowing that he had one. And so usually inheritance comes when someone dies. Well, the New Testament talks about the the inheritance we have in Christ came to us because Christ died and rose again. And because of that, we receive a blessed eternal inheritance that comes from him. And we're to be thankful for that because he took us from darkness to light. He took us from being outside of God's family to being adopted to be part of God's family, to be enter into his family through faith. And as a result, we have the blessings of the family of God, that we're not treated as second-class citizens. You're not an adopted, red-headed stepchild that God doesn't pay attention to because you're not Jewish. 
Do you follow what I'm saying? Is that you were outside of his chosen people. And as a Gentile, you were brought in through faith. And because of that, you're not treated as a secondary member of the family. But every spiritual blessing that's in Abraham is now available to you through Christ. That's a powerful thing. It's powerful in prayer. It's powerful in our understanding. It's powerful when we think about eternity, that we have that in him. But we only have that because of Jesus and what he's done for us. We went from spiritual poverty to blessing, from death to life, from darkness to heavenly light, through Jesus and no one else. And this is why this is important. Because he says if you take Jesus out of the equation like they were doing in Colossae, then what happens is you lose all that. If you, if you forsake Christ, if you think it was just purely philosophical and it was illusion and it didn't really happen, then you miss the very foundational piece of what you have in God and in Jesus. Verse 13, 14 tells us he did this through his blood. It's through his blood and the forgiveness of sins that we have that. Now take a look at verses 15 through 18. You still with me? promise I'll get you out on time, I promise. Verses 15 through 18. It says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, does that mean Jesus was created? No, we'll get to it. Verse 16. For by him all things were created there in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist or exist or are held together. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that he, uh, he may have preeminence. So look at it this way, okay? What we see in those verses is that if we don't know what God looks like, he's telling them, I'll tell you what God looks like. It's found in Jesus. If you look at Jesus, you'll see God. In him the fullness of the Godhead dwells, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in Christ. So he's saying, you can't say to me, like, you know, that Christ is not important. You can't say that he's secondary or he's on par with angels and he's somewhat subservient to them. You can't say that. He's saying, if you want to know what God looks like, God is made visible through the person of Jesus Christ. He does all this to refute the claims of the Gnostics. He says, well, he was firstborn of all creation. Does that mean Jesus was a created being? No, firstborn is usually the one that receives the inheritance and all the authority, right? If you go back to the Old Testament, the firstborn son was the one that would become the head of the tribe. In Joseph and the, the coat of many colors, we read that story in Sunday school, we think it's a cute story. But re- in reality, what uh, Jacob was doing, because Joseph was the firstborn to the wife and woman that he really loved, he gave to Joseph, hey, you're the chieftain. When I die, you will be it. And that's why the other brothers didn't like it, just not because he was stylish or because he had a better coat than anybody else. He's saying, hey, I know what that means. That means he's receiving the inheritance and he's over the rest of the tribe, including us. So when it says he's firstborn among all creation, it means that Christ has the position of the firstborn that receives all blessings that is in line for all the authority and power. And it says even further, just so you know that he wasn't created, he says he created all things. So he's giving him an attribute that only God would have. So we know that Jesus is not an angel that's exalted in some ways. 
We know that he's not just an illusion that appeared and was gone. We know he's not a philosophical construct to help people live a better life, but rather that he was a living, active personification of, the, the, of God himself in the flesh, and that he was even present at creation, creating all things. It even goes even further to say that in him all things consist and are held together. The universe that we, live today, uh, that we live in today, the world that we sit on, everything is held together by the will of God himself, personified in Christ, that it's made for him and by him. It was made for his good pleasure, and it was created by him. So we understand that God, uh, when he rested on the seventh day, he said it was good, and he was happy with it. He was pleased with it. But it was created for him to enjoy and by him that he was created. Basically saying to him, that saying to those who are in uh, Colossae, listen, Jesus was present at creation. He is God in the flesh. He is God personified. So if we remove Christ from the situation, we remove salvation and the blessings of eternal life. If we remove Christ from the equation, we remove him as creator and everything that is held together right now will no longer be held together because he's not holding it together. Verses 19 through 23. It says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth and heaven, laying peace through the cross, through the blood of his cross. For you were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, which he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, notice that, they're trying to move you away from the hope of the gospel. It says as long as you don't do that, you will stay true to it. Which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which Paul I became minister. So Paul is re-emphasizing it to it too. And by the way, he's emphasizing too that the one who created all things is above every principality and power and dominion. Remember, one of the problems in the Colossian church was the worship of angels. They say, if I just pray to this angel, if I just worship this angel, then he's in control of this region and I'll find favor with that, that angel and then I, you know, he'll help affect the will of my life and the course of my life in a positive and favorable way. What he's going on to say is that above every principality, power, dominion, whether it's a good angel or a bad angel, he's above all of it. He supersedes it. His office is higher up. You know, it's further down the hall. He's got the corner office in the building. He's in charge. So everything in this world answers to him in some way, shape, or form. And he goes on to say, he said, not only creation, but salvation. He said, listen, you were once enemies of God, but now you've been reconciled. Reconciliation only happens when two people who are fighting with each other one of them says, I want this to end. By the way, can I encourage you to, if you're fighting with somebody, can you be the one to say, enough's enough? Can you be the Christian in your situation, even if you're among two Christians, to be big enough to say, enough's enough, and I'm going to extend the olive branch? They might slap your hand away, but is your conscience right before God that you can say, you know what? I tried. I tried to be Christ to them because that's what Jesus did. In order for two people to reconcile, one person has to go, I'm going to go and try and make peace. Mankind in his sinfulness was at odds and an enemy of God. But Jesus came 
And he says, I'll be the one that takes the first step. I'll go down to where they are. I'll interact with them. I will care for them. I will love them. I will heal them. I will teach them. I will show them the way to the Father. And I will make a way for there to be reconciliation. And because Christ did that, now he has extended the olive branch. He has opened the door. He has made the opportunity for reconciliation to take place. And because of which, we have peace with God if we choose to receive his forgiveness and to receive belief in him. God made a way to reach him through Jesus. That's why keeping Jesus central is so important. Because without him, you do not have forgiveness. Without him, you don't have reconciliation to God. Without him, you don't have the ability to live the holy life. So trying to do it apart from Jesus is like trying to live a self-righteous life of piety. Because you're a part of the Rotary Club, and you do good deeds, and you volunteer at the food pantry. Don't get me wrong, those are good things. But it's not salvation. And it won't get you there. They're just good things that someone will say, you know what, they did good things while they were here on this earth. But it won't matter in eternity because we still have more bad than good. We really do. But if someone was to come and wipe the slate clean, which is what Christ did, reconciling us to the Father, forgiving us of our sin, paying the penalty for our, our sin, then we have a clean slate before God. Verses 24 through 26 says, now I rejoice in my sufferings with you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of the body, which is his church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery of which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. He stops right there, 26. Okay, what did we talk about at the beginning, right? Talked about that one of the, the, the keys to the Gnostics, the false teachers, the false apostles, was that, you know, the reason why the church had to keep them around is because without them, they didn't have the secret knowledge. Without them, they didn't have the mystery religion. It was a system of control. It was a way of being able to keep them uh, almost like an occult-like way to be able to follow these teachers. Well, if we don't have them, what are we going to do? No one else is going to show us the mystery ways. No one else is going to show us the revelation that comes from God. Only these few can. And Paul's saying, I made known the mystery. And God made known the mystery through Christ. It's not a mystery. It's not confusing. There's nothing confusing about it. He says, this mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So by doing this, what we're doing here is we're seeing that Paul's saying, listen, he's demolishing the argument. He is knocking the pillar over, so to speak. He's saying, these guys are trying to tell you that they have a special mystery, a special revelation, a special insight from God. I want to tell you that everything that Jesus wanted you to know about God has been made known through him and the preaching of the gospel that's been made known to his saints. So we don't have to go, well, God, does God love me? Does he care about me? Will God accept me? That's not a mystery anymore. You know why? Because he made it known. That anyway, he... You know, anyone that comes to him, he will no wise turn away. That if we put our faith in him, we are loved and accepted by God. There's no mystery anymore. And I don't know about you, that's a good news to us. That's a wonderful thing for us to understand. Think about it this way, is that, you know, even as we read Hebrews 11, it says that everyone that was, 
you know, leading up to that was longing forward to and looking forward to the day that this would become revealed and to live in the day that we live in now, that the revelation of Christ made known that, that the Messiah came. He preached. He taught. He showed us the way of the Father. He died and rose again. And now there's a kingdom coming that will never perish, spoil, or fade. We have that as an inheritance for us. And they longed and looked forward to that day. They were saying, I wonder how it's going to come. I wonder how it's going to happen. They'd get visions of what could happen. There'd be prophecies of how it might happen. But they weren't sure how exactly it was going to unfold. But we now have seen it revealed. The Old Testament was concealed, but the New Testament is God's plan of redemption revealed to all of us so that we might know the truth and know the way. Because what had been made a mystery has now been made plain. Verses 27 through 29. God willed to them to make known what are the riches of his glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, meaning Jesus warning every man and teaching every man all wisdom, that we might present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I labor, striving according to his working, which is working in me mightily. So Paul communicates, here's my goal. My goal is that, first of all, you need to know that the mystery has been revealed, that there is no mystery. And God's made known the way to you. And he says, my goal in all of this is to be able to proclaim this mystery to you and to be able to raise up every man in perfection, to bring every man and, and, and woman into maturity in Christ. And he works to unravel the mystery of Christ, not conceal it. And that's what Paul does. Paul says the difference between me and these so-called super apostles is that they try and wrap it up and make it mysterious. So you have to go to them for them. He says, I want to take it and I want to peel it back and pull back the curtain and open the doors and, and make it known to everybody so that knowing and go, I'm not intellectual enough to understand Christianity. I'm not spiritual enough to understand Christianity. No, it's been made known to everybody that everyone who hears and sees can, can perceive and believe. That's the wonderful thing about the gospel is that it's been made plain to us to understand. He says, my desire is to make it clear my every effort is to make it clear and to present you mature and perfect in him so that you might become more like Jesus. He further emphasizes the need for Christ and Christ alone working in every man. If you could walk away with anything from this message today, it would be this. Everything that we have in Jesus is everything that we need. That he is sufficient and supreme. We have sufficiency in Christ, all that we need for salvation, everything that we need for life and godliness is in God's word. Everything. That's amazing. And that he's over all things. Everything, Pastor? Yes, even the things you don't understand, even the things you don't understand. Even the things that frighten you? Yes, the things that frighten you. Even the uncertainty in the world? Yes, he's over those things as well. And the sooner we realize that, the more at ease we will be. The closer to God we will be. We don't have to try and figure out or contemplate the mystery of it all, but we'll be able to trust and look to him. We're blessed today to know Jesus in the way that we know him. We're blessed today to understand and follow after him.
And so we just want to give him our heart today and all that we are. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.